Hey everyone. Hey. Welcome to Too Legit to QT, where you can get it done with Tish as always. Yes, and become the best version of yourself, me, Koya. Yes, we brought back the intro for you all since Tish had an issue the last time. So there you go. <laughs> Today we are so excited because we are here with the award-winning director and producer, Keith McQuarter. Welcome to the show, Keith. Thank you. Thank you for having me. We got to get claps, right? I know. Claps, I feel claps, like we claps, need, claps. we need like, you know, so our friend to the show, Davon Williams, he has like a whole control panel and like, it's like, oh, we need to like invest in that best. Thing. Yeah, we need, to, we need to figure out this situation. We're going to, you know, Keith, you're, you're making us step our game up. So thank you. You know, <laughs> Keith is so excellent, guys. He's like the personification of Black excellence. Like if you look excellence and then black excellence up in the dictionary, you would see like a picture of Keith right there because, <laughs> <laughs> because of his amazing, amazing career. Um, we'll get into all of your films that you have produced and directed in a little bit, but um, Keith, can you tell us a little bit about how you got started and why you got started in entertainment? Yeah, yeah. Um, let's see. So, you know, as a young kid, I was always into comic books and um, I was always drawing and uh, creating stories that comic like different casts of characters. So, you know, I learned to draw like all the cartoons of the 20th century, the cast of Hanna-Barbera, the cast okay. of Disney, the cast of Warner Brothers and then like Peanuts and then even the old cartoons like Marmaduke and Felix the Cat and Betty Boop, like those ones from like the 20s and, you know, 30s, 20s and, and 40s, 50s. And so that those were my like, uh, that was my passion. And those were my uh, cast of characters to create my own stories with. And so, mm -hmm. um, I, so this has been a part of me for a very long time. Um, eventually, you know, my dad's like, you know, cartoonists are poor. You don't want to be a cartoonist. You want to grow up to be something you can make a living with. And I was like, oh. <laughs> and so I was like, okay, I'll be a veterinarian. I just chose one. You know, as a kid, right? Um, that didn't work out so well because um, we had a veterinarian clinic down the street from our house, and I go like be a volunteer, and I, and I would witness all the cats and dogs after they got spayed and neutered. Oh my! And um, they were just kind of like limp and dead looking from the anesthesia, and so I had to take the cats and the dogs and from the operating table to the crates as like these limp dead animals. Oh. <laughs> so I was like, this is not for me. This is not for me. So I stuck on this, I stuck on the the, the path of storytelling and, you know, um, got interested in literature and history and film school and just kept on going. Yeah. Hmm. You know, I'm reading the artist way right now. And she talks about that, about how like our parents and society, sometimes they tell us that an artist can't make money. It's more of a hobby. It's not like a full-time job. You can't make right. a living at it. Right. And how like we as artists have to combat that negative internal conversation and really like find what the root of that is because some artists, they are blocked. But mm -hmm. clearly you weren't blocked. You went to NYU to just film school <laughs> and um, you actually received the Martin Scorsese's Young Filmmakers Award. Um, 
sometimes the life for an artist can be a little bit difficult. Um, and, and it's not that it's not attainable to be successful, but you've clearly made a wonderful living at it. Um, tell us a little bit about what life was like for you after graduation. Did the entertainment industry receive you with open arms or did you encounter some obstacles along the way? Hmm. I don't know if the entertainment industry receives anyone with open <laughs> arms. It's a tough, um, it's, a, it's an adventure to pursue a path in filmmaking or any other area in the entertainment arts. Um, you know, after film school, I started working and I worked in production, but I worked a lot of different odd jobs too. I mean, I worked in finance at a time, hmm. um, working for the, for the, in the, in the financial sector of Manhattan, you know, doing graphic works for the mega banks, you know, hmm. um, I, uh, I worked at a gym, you know, I, uh, I, I did all, I worked at a law, I did a law firm. I did all these different, even I worked as a travel writer and an eco translator, um, eco, mm. eco tour translator. Mm. Um, so I had all these different, you know, variety of different jobs. And um, I knew I was doing these different jobs because they were stepping stones for me to, to go where I wanted to go, which is always to be a director. So, <clears throat> I was ambitious and I knew what I wanted to do and all and everything I did in between then and when I finally arrived to be a director, all informed, all was part of that journey for me. Um, so, you know, you know, you, it's important. I feel to as an artist, um, as a young person, as just a human being in general to just explore, you know, yourself and your own, your own limits right yeah. and to really and to really take the time to do that and um i gave myself that time uh mm, so yeah yeah that's, that's you know what's so interesting about that let's just talk about because we're all artists here side jobs for a second yeah. i've been in finance i've been a receptionist i've mm -hmm. been a personal assistant i've worked as a waitress mm -hmm. <laughs> I've I've worked at um, a talent agency at one point under my agency agency. Mm -hmm. I have like, it's it's just like how one thing that I realized is that it doesn't even looking back on those side jobs, I still feel like being in an industry, you still have, it's still a side job when you're not where you want to be at. So how have you been able to like, because I'm still struggling with like, I've been, I was hustling then. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Like, how have you been able to kind of like overcome the challenges that you face in this industry and also look at it differently from just a hustle? Because that's one of my biggest challenges. Mm. Yeah. You know, it, it comes as artists, like we know there's a passion that we have, right? And there's all these things in a way that take us away from our passion, but we know mm -hmm. in our core what we're about and what we should be doing. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, for me, it wasn't a, it wasn't linear. It was like, you know, it was like a curvy road. Um, it was crazy. Um, yeah. uh, but I kept the faith. I believed, I believe that this is what I was put here to do. I mean, as mm -hmm. corny as that sounds, I truly believed it. I still do. You know, um, 
and so because of that, oh my God, the exhaustion, right? Of, uh, yeah. Of, of just um, all the, everything, everything, everything that's getting in your way of doing what you really want to do. But yeah. I, I, I tell artists, you know, you got to find your way. You have to find mm -hmm. it. You know? mm -hmm. Did you ever have like a moment? Cause I know sometimes even for me, like I've had moments where I'm doing my craft, like maybe 5%. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and I'm working for yeah. these other people and, yeah. and bestie knows like 95% yeah. because I'm an actress. I'm an, I'm a host and uh, Tish and I, we both have a company. Tish is a line producer, um, actress. We met in grad school for acting and then she evolved into this like dynamic producer film. Oh finance <laughs> um, and it's actually a pleasure that we have her here today, Keith, because she's just been so busy. Nice. So I know that the people in the audience, you're excited to see Tish. Yay. Um, but um, but getting back to uh, what I was saying is sometimes you're like, okay, I'm doing this thing 95% of the time. And then you start to like believe, am I really still an artist? Like sometimes I'm like, well, am I really an yeah. actress? And in my core, I'm like, yes, I am. Yeah. But then like balancing bills and surviving and all of that, mm -hmm. it can just, sometimes I just look up and I'm like, how did I get here? And <laughs> I end up here. And what am I doing? Did you ever have moments like that? And then what did you tell yourself in that moment? Because I think every artist can relate to that. You have moments where you're like, how did I get here? Yeah. What am I doing? Yeah. What what did you say to yourself yourself when you were in when you were in those moments? Whew. Um sorry, we get deep here, Keith. So no, just, no, that was <laughs> I mean, I remember one time I drove to the side of the street in Los Angeles and I cried, mm, right? Yeah. Because um, it just seems so daunting, right? Mm, like yeah. this passion that's in me, this fire that's here, it burns in every fi fiber of my being, yet mm -hmm. it's not coming together, right? Mm, yeah. And... Um, and I think, you know, those sorts of moments are important to kind of register because they do feel like you're at bottom. Mm -hmm. And when yeah. you're at bottom, you you find a way to get higher and higher and higher. Because I knew I wasn't going to stay there. That wasn't my place in the world. Um, but that was my own personal conviction. Not everyone's going to have that sort of conviction. And not everyone's going to have that sort of, like, clarity for themselves. And so, you know... <clears throat> If you're if you're doing the passionate 5% and 95% everything else, you know, sometimes you gotta do that. Mm. Sometimes you gotta if you have to pay the bills, you have to, you know, make sure you know you, you want to stay plump so your face is you know nice and plump and you're not like going becoming emaciated because you're not eating, you know what I mean? You're not <laughs> right. I mean, you, you gotta do what you gotta do to get through, but as long as you're doing that five percent, you're not giving up, you're still moving forward, right? Um mm. And so, you know, that momentum can 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 slow down. You got to find your tribe. You know, I mean, you got to find the people yeah. who, who are doing the things that you want to do, and you guys move together, right? Like, yeah. and um, and even if you're not doing exactly what you want to do, can you work for someone who's doing something that's giving you a little bit more experience or a little yeah. more understanding? Like, so it's always you're. you're you're plotting. You're plotting the whole time, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. You're strategizing, and yeah. it's 
it's really interesting because um, I think also we typically think that that 95 to 5% is outside of the industry, right? But that 95 to 5% in my experience has been so in the industry, it's like, I'm working this, I'm doing that, but this is what I really want to do. And I think mm-hmm. a lot of people catch themselves doing that. They're like, man, I've been a PA for 15 years, but I really want to direct. I mean, I don't know if he is 15 years, but I'm just saying like mm-hmm. you find yourselves doing that in and out. So I just wanted to be clear, guys out there, everyone who's listening, that you can even do that within the confines of doing this. Mm-hmm. You know, you could that 95.5 can be, because yeah. when you're in LA, the difference about, I, I do a lot in LA and New York, but when you're in LA, when people see you for what they see you for, it's really hard for them to see you for something else. You really have to introduce yourself for the person that you want to be until you have that one person who's like, hmm, you seem like something else. So I find that it's not it's not also outside of the industry. So how have you, because you're also a producer as well, how have you been able to balance like the producer and director part of yourselves? Because you can get stuck as one or the other, yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, for me, producing has always come very easy. Um, I, I I don't know what it is about my makeup. Maybe it's my mom's side because she was like freakishly organized, like, <laughs> um, and she made sure that shout out know, to mom. Right, shout out to my mom. You know, when, whenever something came up, like um, a project in the house, okay, you need to get you a binder. You need to you need to organize it. You know, she's always like, you need to get you a binder. That's she always start off her sentence like that, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, that organization kind of has come easy for me. So, um, and, uh, you know, kind of looking at the whole picture and how to, how the moving pieces all work. Um, mm. So I relied on my producing abilities to, to, to get me through a lot of the years when I wanted to be directing. Right. Mm. Um, and I'm still producing and I love producing. Um, but it is a different muscle. It's a different side of the brain that you're activating. Um, Mm. and so, um, yeah, I mean, for me, producing was a way to be, um, of service to others. You know, I wanted, I wanted the experience to work on a TV series. Um, you know, I couldn't go in as a director, right. At a, uh, you know, starting off in my career, but I knew I could produce. I knew I could find stories. I knew I could um, build rapport with characters. I knew I could do all these things. And that was valuable. That was a marketable skill of mine. Mm. And I was able to, to um, allow that to open the pathway for me. Mm. Well, let's talk about that because I've taken a look at your body of work and there definitely is a through line of BIPOC voices and the experiences and the history and current realities of Black and Indigenous people um, through different lenses. Um, How were you able to find your voice as a director and actually decide on those particular stories? Because it's like, I'm looking at all your documentaries, I'm looking at all these things, and I'm like, okay, Black people, yes, and I learned a lot. I mean, we'll get into by whatever means necessary, but I mean, 
I started talking to my grandma. I'm in Oregon, everybody visiting my family. And I'm like, oh, that's what my grandmother was talking about in the car on Sunday. So mm. um, tell us a little bit about that, Keith. Yeah. Um, well, when I first started off, so I guess I'll, I started doing documentary because uh, I wasn't able to do narrative short films. I just mm, didn't have yeah. the money to do it. And, you know, when I started off, we were shooting film and film was expensive. Mm. And so the desire to keep directing, I, was, I decided to pick up the camera and start doing short documentaries. And so that's what kicked off my career in documentary. I, I started doing more and more. People started noticing them. Um, and, you know, they're like, hey, this kid has an eye for this. This kid has a talent for this. So they plucked me. Mm. They plucked me and said, hey, here's a TV show. Try this. And, um, and I've always had... Uh, um, a personal investment to tell stories of black people and people of color or people who are in the margins of society. It's just my personal interest. Um, mm. uh, even with the short stories, I was doing these fringe stories of people, not necessarily BIPOC people, but just people doing different things that normal people weren't involved in. And so um, my career started to snowball in a way that, yeah, it, 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 it has been a focus on black stories mostly and as a as a black filmmaker uh, i'm happy to tell those stories because you know i think for so long our stories have been told by not us mm -hmm. and you can tell when it's not directed by us you know yes. you can tell, because there, there's a cultural nuance that's missing mm -hmm. and um and and there's always like this sort of like fascination of with the trauma mm -hmm. um, it's like a white gaze yeah yeah, yeah. and so and, and so i i love to tell stories that really humanize who we are because i feel like for our entire history in this country and our 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 perception around the world is that we are these caricatures and there's only like two or three models of who we are if you don't fit into those models you're not black and yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? And it's like, no, like there's so much variety and diversity and nuance. Like why, why can't these stories be told? And so I look for that. I look for those stories that allow for that humanization of who we are. Mm -hmm. there's, love there's just so much beauty that there's just so much beauty. I, I know it's something it's like, a, it's warming to find mm -hmm. those stories. Yeah. Yeah, I love how you, I'm just listening to you. And one of the things that I'm definitely picking up on is that there, there was and probably still is a consistent openness to doing your art and to allow it to take you in whatever direction that it wants to take you within while still being true to yourself. Um, like what you just said about you it was more expensive to make narrative films so you decided to make documentaries because it was less expensive and oftentimes a lot of we as artists were constantly put in that situation where you might want to do uh, you might want to do a particular film maybe you want to do a short but you don't have a location and you're like okay well maybe let's shoot it outside or can we shoot it like this and 
And there has to be that openness and that willingness to say, well, where will it take me as long as I get this result um, to still be true to myself as well? And you can definitely see that in your body of work. Um, you, your documentary, Milwaukee, let me get it, let me get it right because it's the area code, Milwaukee 53206, uh, chronicles, chronicles the lives of those living in the most inc incarcerated zip code in America for Black men. Um, can you tell us like what the catalyst was for creating that particular story? Because you you know that you want to focus on that. That's the story. Those are the stories that you're interested in. But what mm -hmm. drew you to that particular story? Yeah, there's almost two catalysts to that story. Um, when I was... Um, maybe six years prior, I was doing research in New Jersey on a story and I went into a, um, a facility uh, where men were transitioning, where they were transitioning from prison life into um, back into society. Mm -hmm. And um, I went with a group of community healers and they went and spoke before the men. And I walked in and it was in the cafeteria. And I was able just to be in the general population. And there are hundreds of, of inmates there. And um, I looked around and, and everyone was black and brown and around my mm -hmm. age. Um, and it, it, you know, I mean, it could have been the kids I grew up with. They could have been my cousins. Like it mm -hmm. was the first time in my professional life at, or at, that, at that age where I walked into a room and everyone was my peer. Mm. And so for me, intellectually, I knew the numbers of incarceration. I knew all these things, but I had never seen it with my own eyes like that before. And so it was a, it, it really hit an, an emotional nerve with me. When I left, I felt physically sick. Mm. I knew when I left, I had to do something because I have a voice. I, I work in media. I can tell the story. However, I didn't know what, how, when any of that stuff, I just knew I had to do it, right? And then six years later, Milwaukee 5306 um, came along because there was research by the University of Wisconsin-Madison, I think it was Madison, um, uh, that said that the 53206 zip code was the most incarcerated zip code um, mm. in the nation. And mm. so, that's what drew me to that zip code. I didn't have any background in Milwaukee. I didn't know too many people there, but the research took me there. 62% of all, 62% of black men in that zip code were incarcerated before the age of 34. Wow. That's so interesting. And that's, and what is that statistic again? 62% of all black males before the age of 34 have been incarcerated in, in that zip code. How is that? <laughs> I'm just trying to think percentage-wise. How is that even possible? That's, that's insane. Astronomical. Mm. Yeah, that's insane. Well, it, it, it kind of reminds me a little bit of, um, which I actually learned in your film, uh, the your, your docu-series by Whatever Means Necessary, when you spoke about the the drug epidemic in Harlem and how everybody thinks that black people that, oh, we just were doing drugs and selling drugs. But when you broke down the statistics and the reality that 
black people couldn't own property mm -hmm. black people couldn't get certain types of jobs sometimes they couldn't even get a job at all to provide for their family and so these jobs running the numbers um, mm -hmm. uh, being involved in drugs that's how people were able to put food on the table so it's not that oh i just you know got caught up into this life of crime um this is something that has to do it's an economic thing and i think even still now to this day i'm from richmond california we're both from the bay yay mm -hmm. east. Uh <laughs> i remember i'm repping east bay Yes, East Bay. Yeah, me too, me too. Pleasanton and Richmond, they're both like East Bay. So we're like, <laughs> technically used to be 510, but now your area code is a little bit different, but that's okay. We're still going to say we're 510 <laughs> family, uh, which we talked about earlier. <laughs> um, but when I look at like my, my people in my family, people that I grew up with, and I look at the economic disadvantages that they have been up against, you know, um, being in Section 8, um, being, being a kid of food stamps and what that means when somebody gets sick and then there's, there's no money or income coming into the household. That's why people get involved in crime. Like I, I think the media with that white gaze, they try to glorify it as if it's like, it's so alluring. And so you, you get into that because it looks exciting, they, but they dehumanize it. They dehumanize yes, it. So exactly. it, it, that's what you find. It's just like they it's kind of like the word thug, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> they mm -hmm. use these these words that really dehumanize individuals and they, and why they take the actions that they take. Not saying it's mm -hmm. wrong or right, but you know, looking at when you talk about slavery. It's like, oh, it's a, it was an economic thing at that time. It's just like mm -hmm. they tried to humanize this really crazy thing and they want everybody to look at it. But yeah. the news is the catalyst of dehumanizing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they will dehumanize everything mm -hmm. you know, and, and have everybody looking at, at, at people in a certain way, you know? Mm -hmm. so, yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know, <sighs> In those times after after slave during slavery and after slavery, how the media at that time, theater being one of you know where the origins of American theater, how they would um, portray slaves or the happy slaves, they were happy to be enslaved, they were mm -hmm. happy to be working those fields, mm -hmm. um, and so that's that became a prevailing narrative that you know uh, we're doing a favor because we're providing um, you know happiness for these people who are who wouldn't who would be savages otherwise mm -hmm. um and so that is that white gaze you know mm -hmm. and it was economic because if people knew the truth some <laughs> would feel more differently than they did right and and with the incarceration rate in, in all over the country and in milwaukee you know, there's all sorts of reasons for this, right? There's redlining, there's over-sentencing, there's economic, lack of economic opportunity, like you said. There's this, the school-to-prison pipeline, the foster care system to, to mm -hmm. prison pipeline. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you go down the whole list and the list is enormous. And you want, and you, and you, and you, and you, and, and, and then you say, okay, well, to your point, Tish, like, um, you, you can criminalize anything you want, you know, if you can pass the law, 
Um, and so when you have a huge police presence that's hanging outside in the neighborhood or in are in the projects, when they have a oftentimes we'll have like an office or a precinct in the projects, well listen, more people are gonna be incarcerated because they're right, they're living with you right there. Mm. You're not gonna find a precinct in an NYU dorm or a Yale dorm where there's lots of drug use happening there. Mm. You know? Um so well, isn't there a lot of homelessness too in Milwaukee or at my um is that also a statistic i thought milwaukee had um a large homeless population as well i can't speak you don't know I don't, Do you I, all know, know? I know there's a book written about the eviction rate in, in milwaukee that's maybe what yeah you're i'm gonna look that up but i you know it you tend to find also a lot of people who are homeless and i don't know if this is from milwaukee so i don't want to say it is but also <laughs> that's where you have a high incarceration rate as well is because you have people who just don't have the means to eat or get jobs mm -hmm. or the skills um so yeah but, I, mean, you know, we're looking at, I mean we're looking at systemic systemic racism we're looking mm -hmm. at uh, systemic um uh you know this is these there have been things set up that um can trap uh, yeah. people who are living in poverty, right? People who don't have resources, people who don't have these things that, um, uh, that let's say the kid who grew up in a middle-class household in the suburbs would have. Mm. So Milwaukee 5306 really puts a lens to that on yeah. a family that, um, that takes us into that world rather than through a lens of like, you know the white paper statistics and and yeah. uh, so that sort of thing. So yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. It's it's really interesting though because you know, and I'm not a, you know, I'm not very well versed when it comes to um, the incarceration of black men. I don't have any statistics or anything, but a lot of the times you hear that it's because fathers are in the home. That's like a constant narrative for for people to say that's why it's a high, you know, incarceration rate or that's why these young men are going um, to jail. When when you did that documentary, did you find that there was a high rate of, and this is me asking you in your research, that there is a high rate of, of, of homes of that such? Because I almost from being from the south everybody got daddy <laughs> and i want to know where is this where is this coming from you know well it's a cycle so mm -hmm. let's say 53206 the zip code if 62% yeah. of men are incarcerated who are of fathering age mm. then you, that that tells you something right there there's mm. there are missing fathers in that zip code and um you know uh, fathers are important you know um incarcerated children have you know they don't the statistics are not great i mean parents the kids who have incarcerated parents it's just the the statistics aren't great for their their um their educational um you know um performances and their behavioral performances and, okay. um you know the house is um there's less income in the house because the father is away. Um, his example is not there. So the boys and the girls don't have that 
father figure in the house. So it's 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 all related. And, and yeah, yes, that, that yeah, is it is. Yeah. So you know, you take the men away, then what happens to our community? Yeah, exactly. Amen. Yeah, it seems like you had to do a lot of research <laughs> on that. Yeah. Right. How, are you, how are how so you handle a lot of sensitive subject matter. I mean, even within the BIPIC community, how are you able to handle to handle that? To do interviews with people that might be triggering, or maybe they might be reliving certain events. How are you able yeah. to like sit down, have those interviews? Um, aggregate all of that information so that way you can tell the story because um, that can't be easy to do. It's a good. It's a good question. You know, it's a really sensitive approach to it because, yeah, there is a lot of trauma involved, um, yeah. and there's a lot of not everyone has clarity of their own story. Most people don't, so mm. there's a lot of fear in sharing one story with a camera and knowing that there's gonna be an audience of thousands, millions of people to see it. So um, it's it's my responsibility as a director to create, a safe, to create a safe place where the interviewee uh, is invested mm-hmm. in the story and, yeah. and uh, they are at a place in their life where they're ready to share their story. That place mm-hmm. may not come very easy all the time because some stories are very uh, there's a lot of unhealed trauma and a lot of questions still being asked and but that's their station in life at that very moment and that too um you know it offers some sort of insight for some sort offers some sort of um uh understanding for their situation for others who are going through it and for others who aren't going through it to be more empathetic i mean that's really what documentary is you're 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 yeah. building empathy for the public so people understand each other and who um, get to experience stories that are outside of their own lives um mm. so for for the for the interviewees it's really it's a really important it's really important for me personally to invest the time and invest myself and to get the the person's family invested um mm before we go into any of those sorts of interviews. Hmm. How do you do that? Yeah, I was gonna say, how long does that take too? Yeah. It takes however long it needs to take. It could take take months, it could take years, it could take a week, it could take a few days, you know? It all depends Hmm. on the individual and where they're at. Hmm. And and what do you do? Is Is it a matter of like, sending them the question, the interview questions and telling them about the process and seeing when they might be open. Like, how do you, how do you as a director identify when they're ready, when they're open? Is it like when you show up with your camera? Uh, can be, uh, mm-hmm. there's, no, there's no one way to do it. Um, mm-hmm. I, as a, as a artist, as a person with responsibility to tell, to help, to help, facilitate another story, um, you're, you're on their time. And, mm-hmm. and um, when they're ready to share, how they're ready to share, um, you know, I'm sort of like 
I can pull the pieces together so there's coherency, there's clarity, there's um, the visual nature of it, and there's, um, but, you know, I can, I can create the whole list of questions, share or don't share with them if they don't want to answer any of them, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, there's just not, it wouldn't work. So they mm -hmm. have, they have to be invested into the story themselves. There's no, there's no making anyone, there's no bamboozling anyone, like none of that stuff. Yeah. It's mm -hmm. really, it's I would really imagine. Yeah. I would imagine that might be a little healing, though. Like, like, like you would feel that you know having someone listen to your story would be in some way therapeutic, right? Well, that's, that's the beauty of what. That's the beauty of making documentary, because yeah. ordinary people don't know they have a story usually, right? They, yeah. We all go about living our lives, right? We live our lives. You know, we don't really think much about what we're doing. We we you know we make our dinner, we sit with our family, and then we pick up their plates and wash their dishes, and then we go to sleep. And you know, what I mean, like those mundane yeah. things. Um, you know, that's how we go about our lives. And so, when I sit down with people and say, "Hey, I think you have a really, a really interesting story," they're just like, "What?" Like, that's 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 the usual response. Like, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Um, and then I, I share with them why I think it's interesting. And they, they know someplace that they have something, but they don't know where it is oftentimes. So, mm -hmm. you know, I've seen people, and this is the beauty of what documentary does. Like, I'll, I'll go meet someone for breakfast, dinner, or go to their house and sit on the couch, whatever it might be, have a conversation about their story. And like I said, they, they're just kind of like, okay, why me? But then after some time they find that they have a story and I'm, and I'm there to hear it because oftentimes I'll be the first person to sit and have a, and have an engaged audience, be, be the audience for that person. Mm -hmm. And they start telling their story and all of a sudden you see this person, this happens all the time. You see them go from kind of like this kind of like shy or depressed about it, have anxiety your um, mm -hmm. anger you see them kind of like open up and kind of start blossoming right and there's and and to your point there is i think there's something very human about it because you know for instance us us three at some point in our lives as artists we identify as artists we we discovered in ourselves that we have a personal story right mm -hmm. like at some point, we just, we had that. I have something, right? Um, and that is empowering, right? Like, like that gives you a little bit more of a um, uh, um, a, a straighter spine or something, right? Like you just kind of there's something about it. you know that you have you're fortified because you have that mm -hmm. story. Yeah. Um, and so they do that, and it's it's really it's really a gorgeous thing to watch. Like it's really, it's, it's one of the, it's one of the things I get most excited about and most proud of uh, making documentaries is when that happens. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I, so this is the reason why we do what we do. Cause there is something rewarding to being able to create something that is human, right. Um, that, other people can see and also can be therapeutic for them or even for the people that we're filming it can be therapeutic for them but mm -hmm. there's also and i 
because I want to kind of like shift the conversation because I know that creatively, like it's a beautiful thing, but God dang it, it is hard out here in these streets to do what we do, Key. <laughs> like it is hard. So I want to talk a little bit about how you've been able to create these stories and then get it out there. How you've been able to like network and get people interested in the stories. And I know um, part of it is, is because of your passion behind it. Like it just, your passion just screams through, mm -hmm. through, through everything that you do. But sometimes like as a person who does independence all the time, and works with filmmakers all the time, sometimes that's not good enough, right? Sometimes it takes just something a little bit more or something else. How are you able to create these stories that you're very passionate about and that, you know, you you definitely are changing like people's lives when you're telling these stories and then get people to listen to it because it's not always easy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, um... You know, I've had so much failure um, to get mm. to this point. I've had so many stories that didn't make it, mm. uh, that died. And each story, you invest so much into those stories and then they die and you grieve those stories as if you're grieving, you know, a relative or something. Mm. Like, um, yeah. So for as many that have made it to the screen, there's a lot that haven't, right? Mm. And I think that's what, it is, you know, all the stories yeah. that came to the screen gave me something that I can move forward with because it gave me more, um, it gave me more understanding of my own power as a filmmaker, so I could take it to the next project that did make it. Um, mm. I, I got, I gotta say, there's something to be said about working for other people too, um, yeah, because there are filmmakers out there who are who all the world comes to and you can build your own credentials and your own um, value and get people in the industry to know who you are, who you are and to, um, you know, they know you worked on this project and that was a great project and you, and you have the, you can generate ideas, you have ambition, you know, you, you can communicate, right? Um, they're going to pull you on other projects and eventually you're going to get your own. Um, mm. Because unless you come from a wealthy family have a rich uncle yeah. who loved you then... that's the thing no it's 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 a real thing let's be real guys because some of these i'm just going to be real be real some of these filmmakers out here they have rich parents or uncles or family members in finance who finance their first big project and allow them to just sit in that space and make something beautiful for however long they need to do that that and then also you have people who are the child of a child of someone who's in the industry and connect them mm -hmm. to the right people and that's not always mm -hmm. the space so you'll see these filmmakers but you don't see all the moving parts that they have behind them and that's not mm -hmm. a very typical thing but mm -hmm. you'll sit there and you'll hear their story and they'll be like oh someone invested but they won't tell you that mm -hmm. was all no, they'll never tell you they'll never I tell you and yeah. and can I and can I just say, because Bestie knows, Keith, I am the queen of research. I know 
everything about everybody. I'm like constantly I on IMBD, and then I'm like, oh, and I'll tell her like, oh, this person's related to this person, or this person's best friend is this person, or they went mm -hmm. to school with this person, and she'll be like, how do you know yeah. that? That's just my thing. I don't know why. And almost <laughs> every single time, if I do some digging, that is the case. Sixty-five percent of the time that's the case. And I think mm. that there's this common misconception in this industry that we think the people that are just coming out of nowhere, building connections and whatnot, and it takes us like, let's just say 10, 15, 20 years, we think that we're the majority. We're not. We're actually the minority, which is why your 15 to 20 years developing and cultivating relationships you don't know if this person is associated with this other person who already did their 15 to 20 and 30 years and then they just plug it in so yeah. that is actually parents are like uh a parents are like into some yeah y'all need to look out for these behind the scenes parents who are like i have this one girl she's like 19 years old she's an ad she's making 800 a day i'm just i just I'm, makes 800 a day but her father was a UPM for like all these big movies. And I'm like, how the heck at 19? And she was like, yeah, I've been ADing since I was 13. And I'm like, how is that possible? Like, literally, I was like, wait, what? Since you were 13? Like, literally, I was like, how is that? But maybe her father brought her on a couple sets, had her second ADing. I don't know. I'm just saying, guys, when you see these stories, they're not as like cut and dry somebody's 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 knows somebody mm -hmm. or when you see people on social media you know just nowadays when i see something i just always say i don't know all the pieces to the puzzle like i, I literally just say that and i just say okay i'm on my journey and when i see something i'm like i don't know all the pieces to the puzzle and um speaking of pieces to the puzzle um you did that with by any means necessary the the times of the Godfather in Harlem. I was like, that is a long time. <laughs> so no let me get no it doubt. right. Yeah. <laughs> you executive produced that with for the Forest Whitaker. So I mean, clearly there has been there has been networking, and you have been able to develop relationships in the industry. And I was looking at your career, and I was like, okay, there's this natural progression. And me and Bestie always talk about sometimes when you do a project, like you said earlier, Keith, nothing may technically come out of it, but you might meet somebody who oh, yeah. leads you to this person or your next job or you learn a skill and then you take that skill to the next project. Can you tell us a little bit about that film and how, I mean, you want to end up LACP image. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, recently, so you're kind of killing the game. <laughs> kind of. That's not a kind of behind that. And it's, it's good too. It, and it's, and can we just talk about it? Because for me, I'm not necessarily a documentary person per se. I don't just like, Oh, let me watch documentary. But I literally watched your documentary with my family and we were really into it. It was very, um, I love documentaries that are just entertaining versus just mm -hmm. informative. I just, mm -hmm. I don't know. I still need some type of entertainment with yeah. story and information. And it was, and it was excellent. Thank you. Thank you. Well, you know, I think uh, it's all, I, I, it's a, it's a, it's a, principle of mine like you never know where people are going in their careers um 
even if they're working reception and even if they're working in a different industry altogether, you know, you never dismiss people, right? You, you give, you let everyone have their chance. And if you may not get along with everyone, that's certainly the case for me, but you know, you're just like, okay, well, you know, you wish them the best anyway and continue on your path. And there's going to be people who you let go of, of course, but there's going to be people you hold closely um, to you. And they're going to be the people you go with for a good chunk of your career, maybe your entire career. Um, and so I met Forrest on Brick City. I did Brick City. Um, it was a five-part documentary series for Sundance Channel. He was an executive producer on that series. And, um, and uh, you know, we, and, and then after Brick City was over, so we, Forrest, you know, we, we, um, we enjoyed each other's company um, when he would come through on Brick City. But it was this, I did a, a story after Brick City um, that he was really into that one of the stories that died actually, but he was really into that story. And so we built a relationship there and, um, his, his producing partner, Nina Bon Jovi, um, uh, she came into the picture and, and so those relationships were growing over the course of many years. And so when the opportunity came, it seemed like a great fit to work together on by whatever means necessary. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, that project was, that project was really, uh, had an interesting origin story because um, Epics had, had a really successful season with Godfather of Harlem and it grew their audience to, it grew, grew their audience to, in, into the millions. It was a huge win for Epics. Mm -hmm. And so they had got commissioned to do a season two in the network because there was a gap in time between season one and season two. The network wanted to do something to keep the fans engaged. And so the idea of doing this documentary series was, was born and, um, and doing it through the inspiration of Godfather Harlow and the music uh, in Godfather Harlow. So, um, mm. so it was a lot of fun to do that story, uh, to do the research of that story because, you know, my parents were teenagers in the 60s. And mm -hmm. um, and so as with, with all of us in our teen years, we take our music with us throughout our lifetime, right? So yes. Motown was always in my household, and uh, Curtis Mayfield was always in our playing mm -hmm. in our house, and um, you know Coltrane. All those old greats were always in our house, and so I, you know, growing up there, that was like the wallpaper, right? Right. Hey. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah. I know a lot of, I remember I had friends who come over like, your parents listen to this music? This is so great. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Wasn't yeah. that everybody's parents though? I feel like, it was like, yeah. Yeah, about this. this is music. Yeah, this is music, yep. Yeah. You young people today know what music is. music. Right, so, you know, the research for this film was interesting because, you know, story, these, this music, music I've been hearing all my life now had a different story behind it and had a political reason behind it. Mm -hmm. um, and, yeah. um, and, you know, it wasn't just dance and fun. It was, it was real hard music. And so that was eye-opening, like that whole experience of understanding how the music influenced culture and politics and how politics and music influenced, um, how culture and politics influenced music was fascinating because it still, it reflects like, 
what's happening today, you know, mm -hmm. um, you know, we made by whatever means necessary in 2020. So it was mm -hmm. during the, so we started, we started making it before George Floyd, um, before his, that his murder took place. Um, and then it happened in the middle of our, our research. And so mm -hmm. we're like, well, we can't wow. tell the story without addressing today. Like we just can't. Mm -hmm. um, and so, so yeah, that, that film was really, um, it was eye-opening for not only audiences, but for, for the filmmakers myself, you know, as well. It was, it was literally fantastic. And can we just, so we can't brush over this bestie because he literally said that he was opportunity ready. And you know, that's our thing, everybody. Yeah, like out there. We always tell you to be opportunity ready. We literally did a whole season on opportunity yeah. ready. So and, and literally they, you said that they did the Godfather of Harlem and then they wanted to create a series in the interim and you had developed relationships, but you also have the skills to be able to deliver and do so. And you were prepared when that opportunity came. And it was, you literally, let like, me it was tell you, let me tell you, I got a call. I was at a yoga retreat. I've never been to a yoga retreat ever in my life. You know? <laughs> oh, say, oh my gosh, you look very zen. <laughs> <laughs> well, it wasn't because I'm doing yoga, <laughs> but I went to a yoga retreat and I was in the middle of the mountains in California, right? The reception wasn't great. I got this like, Keith, we got to, Keith, are you available? We got to do this pitch. We got this pitch. We got to, we got to, uh, I was like, what, what? And I was like, oh, okay. I have to find a spot in the mountains where I have like a reception and call my whole network of people to activate them, right? Um, so we could start building this because it was it was a fast turnaround. And um, I remember being so stressed out because I just didn't have internet. I couldn't do anything, right? Mm. Um, but to your point, I was ready. I knew what to do. I knew how to, I knew how to call the cavalry, right? Um, to help pull research and and graphic research and photo research and 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 all this stuff together, so we could build a build a pitch and and present it to the network and say, hey, we can do this, right? Mm -hmm. just, you know, my yeah, and that's a skill too. <laughs> Well, yeah. you and Joshua Tree, just by any curiosity, because everybody goes to Joshua. <laughs> I was in the San Bernardino Mountains. So I was in like. Oh, oh uh, yeah. Like, I went to UC Riverside. Ontario. Yeah, no. I went to UC Riverside, which is like Inland Empire, same thing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <in> the desert. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and pitching, pitching is a whole skill. Can we just say that? It's not something mm -hmm. like when you talk about being opportunity ready, it's not something that just pitching just happens, it's actually something that you have to practice. So I want to ask you, what piece of advice would you give like an emerging director or filmmaker or someone out there who's trying to get like, you know, their first project together, or they're trying to pitch a series, or they're trying to be in a position where they can build their network? Well, if you're pitching a story, and it's your first project, especially, mm -hmm. um, you got to know where the love is in that project. You have to know what what's so what your pat why you're passionate about it where it resides in your in your being, and you gotta you gotta know how to communicate that to whoever you're talking to. Mm. You know, if mm. you can't communicate your passion, it's gonna be tough. 
Hmm. So use whatever, like if you're not a speaker, use visuals, use print, you know, if you're an excellent speaker, go and go in there and use your oratory skills, you know, um, you know, if you, you know, use if you, if you're none of those things, but you can direct like, like crazy, get some people together and act out whatever it is in the room. You know what I mean? Like make it work because whoever is asking you buy it or invest in it, if they don't see the passion they're not going to get it. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm with you on that. And you know, one thing that I feel, um, you know, in my experience of pitching as well is, is that people want to, they, they hope and pray that when you're in the room with them, that you're that person that's going to tell something that's unique and different. People don't give you audiences or they don't allow you in the room just because they, they don't want you to do something. They want you to have that story. So, you know, I've, I've talked to a lot of filmmakers and they're just like, oh, it just seems like everything's against. And it's like people don't give you opportunities. They don't call you. They don't put you there in a room not wanting you to be that next big story. Yeah, You're you, there because they want you there. If you can get into the room, that's a pretty good step. But the second step is getting back into the room after your first. Yeah. Mm. But, also, yeah. but also, you know, our filmmakers are being are frustrated because many of us think that it's all about story and passion, right? But we're not yeah. looking to solve the business problems of whoever we're pitching to. And yeah. The business problem, the business problem is... The business problem is, well, I need content, right? I need content yeah. that's marketable. So how yeah. can I market? Mm -hmm. So our game is a marketing game. It's not a storytelling game. It's all about marketing, right? Mm. Um, and so if you if your story is marketable and fills the business problem of that organization, that network, or fills fills an investment problem uh, for that individual, then you're in a good place. But if it's doing none of those things and you're just coming in there with like, I have the best story for you, but it doesn't solve any of your problems. Hmm. That's where. Yeah, but you know, that's why you have to have also, I would really tell a lot of artists to have a plethora of content and things that you're working on. And you may have like your sweet, sweet stories, but also have like other things. Cause yeah. just because you don't have that one thing that's right for that person, that doesn't mean that you don't have other things because people will tell you what they're looking for. And I found that people are like, well, I don't want this, but I'm looking for that. And I'm like, well, mm -hmm. what about this? And they're like, yeah, I'll take a look. You know, like sometimes it's not just about your passion project. It, it's about maybe the other projects that you have as well, especially if you write a lot, if you direct a lot. Yeah. Look at multiple projects that you can direct because you just yeah. never know. And I found in my experience, it's just better to have more that you can say that you want to do than less. Um, I agree. But can we also talk about where you have to be as an artist to even do that? Because Everybody can do like, it, so. well, well, what I'm saying is, is that I think that there has to be this, this compartmentalization as a artist to where, and we talk about this all the time, we're like, okay, I know that I'm very passionate about these things, but also I have this part of myself, but then I also have to decompartmentalize and know that some things I'm going to have to look mm -hmm. at it and have a business brain, right? 
because sometimes with artists, it's like, we just think that everything that we're doing, it has to be like, this one story is gonna be the thing that catapults me to where I need to be versus no, this is something that is very marketable. I know I can sell it really well. And then that will open doors to get me to a place where I can then do that. I know for me, I had to do that. Everything mm. was like, this has to be like a great song. And this, every project had to be like, if I didn't feel it in my being and my loins, then I just felt like I wasn't being true to myself yeah. as an artist. And that's complete foolishness. It was complete foolishness. And it was stopping me from getting to where I needed to go. And once I started saying like some projects, like, okay, like this is something that I like, but maybe I don't have to be like in front of the camera. Maybe I can help somebody behind it or this project, you know, this is not like my life's work. So it's mm -hmm. okay that I, and then I became a little bit more flexible and yeah. to have those multiple projects to pitch. I think that as an artist, you have to get to that point within yourself where it's not like, okay, all five of my scripts are life-changing. <laughs> can we just talk of just, just the thing is collaboration, right? I, I just think, um, one of the things John Cry, who's a friend of the show, has said to me is collaboration is one of the best things about this industry. Collaboration is one of the worst things about this industry because you do have to depend on other people as well to collaborate, right? So it's just like one thing that I find is that you can't be afraid to collaborate with people on other projects, even if it's not your yeah. project. So sometimes just you know, finding somebody who has the right project that you want to work on that can be in that room is just as good enough as you having your own project for that moment. Because being yeah. in that room and working with people and building a rapport is way more valuable than just having a project getting done. You build those relationships because your goal as a working artist, because we want to be working artists, is to build relationships and to have a career a career that people admire. That doesn't mean you don't have, you don't have to take on stories that you don't admire. Yeah. Totally take on the stories you admire with the people that you want to do it with. Yeah. Yeah. That's just it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, amen. Yeah. I think, for my, <laughs> <laughs> you know, for myself, I, I had, so I, I did, for me, that was in the advertising world, you know, yeah. I think doing ads and commercials, um, was a way that I didn't have to be invested emotionally or passionately mm -hmm. in those things. Like I, Craft Cheese is a great company, but I don't have <laughs> love like that for, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. um, <laughs> so yeah. I was able to do the work and move on and kind of get the hands-on experience of the production and working with crews and, and had some amazing adventures, got mm -hmm. to see parts of the world, got to meet amazing people, earned an income, right? And yeah. it allowed me to do the work, continue being a filmmaker, but also having the other part of my brain uh, reserved for the things I actually cared about, right? Mm -hmm. And so, yeah. and so, you know, as, as to your point, Tish, like, you know, working with somebody else on someone else's project, you're still getting those feels. You're still getting, you're still in the right place, right? 
Yeah. This may not be your project, but you're in the right place and you can learn and you can build those relationships and you can experiment and you can see how mistakes are made and you can see how successes are made and you can use that yeah. for your own, your own, your own work. Hmm. Yeah. And don't, you know, I just want to say it out there to young artists right now. Like, don't feel bad if you're not where you want to be right now at this time in this place in this industry. It is hard doing what it is that we're doing. And, you know, there's so many, there's so much opportunity out there. Just don't give up on yourself because it's not the way film school taught you because film Mm -hmm. school, I'm just going to say that out there. Film school We've all been to school in the arts. Why the hair flip? Yeah. Uh, 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 It's it's just like they'll have you thinking that it's only one way or another and have you comparing yourself to all these people when quite frankly, you are you. You know, you're going to make and do what you need to do and have your own voice and be inspired. Yes. But, you know, I just I just want to inspire people out there who think it has to be this one way when everybody that I meet in this industry is doing it their own way. They're figuring it out. There's no one way to get your movie. There's no one way to finance your movie. There's no one way to finance your movie. <laughs> There's no one way to get your movie done. There's no one way to collaborate. There's no one way to network. I mean, we, we definitely have like amazing people with Keith on the show and you know, it's just like this. This is a story, and I'm hoping his story inspires you to do it your way. Mm-hmm. And he said his your path. You said your it path was all this. up and down. Yes. It was like yeah, this. For sure. yeah. yeah, exactly. But I also appreciate your honesty too. About I think that sometimes people don't want to talk about the truth about like survival jobs and how they got yeah. to where they. They are. I remember for years, even the fact that I said that I had a survival job, I'm getting like this glow from this. The sun is setting. I don't know what's happening. Um, <laughs> it's an inner but, glow. It's yes, inner glow. It's coming you. through. Thank yeah. you. Um, but like for years, it was like the fact that I said that I had like a survival job and the fact that I wasn't like, oh, I'm acting full time or hosting full time. Like it was like, oh, and then people. But then I found out that people were doing the same thing. They just didn't want to talk about it. And it was like, uh, yeah. we just want to say that we're doing this and we're doing that. And we want to read off all of these accomplishments. But some that really wasn't nourishing for me. Um, mm. I realized that the people that I related that I relate to and even now that I relate to and that have become my collaborators are people that can sit in that truth and that honesty and say, you know, I have this going on, but yet I'm working on this and this really isn't that easy, but I'm doing this and that. And then it's like, we can stop ha- trying to have this facade and actually figure out how to collaborate and help perpetrate. Yes, like smoke mirrors. Can we talk about, and we're gonna, we're getting to the end of our podcast, but I just want to state this. Um, you know, as we're we're getting, can we just, guys, we know that you just got your big series. You got your one big opportunity out there. You just, you know, you made your whatever minimum schedule F, whatever that you just <laughs> made, right? But those jobs are not forever. And we know that people who don't have those jobs, sometimes it's okay that you got to go back to be a bartender. 
sometimes it's okay that you won't get your job for another year. Like, mm-hmm. let's not, let's take the shame away from us being hardworking yeah. individuals because mm-hmm. at the end of the day, we're we are hardworking human beings. Okay, mm-hmm. we're not part of the one percent. We are still in the middle class with everybody else. We're, we're freelancing. Like the, like the, it's a freelance job. Yeah, it's like like, like the father who's working for his family and the mother who's whatever she's doing who's working in whatever she's doing we're still in that class of working class people so don't be ashamed to be a working class person i just want to put that out there we are all working hard towards our dreams but we're still working okay mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. we're not we're not we're in the, we're not in the top five ten percent yet yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you know and yes. but, but here's the thing some of your listeners may be and it's Maybe. still not going to be it's still not easy because just because you're in the top 1% doesn't mean you're going to get a movie. It doesn't mean you have the skills yet to make that movie. So, you know, um, I mean, Meryl Streep, you know, has to struggle to get some of her movies made. So if you're like Meryl, Meryl Streep, like she should be like really? any movie made. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's, it, doesn't, it, doesn't, it doesn't stop. So, you know, again, our passion drives us. I mean, we could... There's a lot of smart people in this industry doing um, who could do a lot of different other things in this world and make a killing. Yeah. You know, um, but they're choosing to do this because they're driven by that love, that passion, that yeah. need, that desire, you know, to express and to um, support and to facilitate and to make a story that's going to move people, mm-hmm. you know? And so, um, yeah, I mean, like, life isn't a straight arrow. And, yeah. and sometimes we have to take projects because um, we have a family to feed or we have to feed ourselves or, yeah. you know, um, and we have to work for other people sometimes because that's just the way it goes. And yeah, yeah there, there is no shame in that. Um, I think we, I think what's important though, is to keep your eyes on the prize and mm, yeah. keep getting better, keep striving forward, you know, Keep finding clarity in your own vision. Keep finding clarity in your life. Master yourself. Mm. And finding people um, who and finding people who believe in that vision and who support that. You know, yeah. um, I think I think collaboration and community, community is a big thing. Like finding your community is also something which, you know, I've been kind of stop I've been cyber stalking you and your community, Keith. You know, don't you got a community, okay? You got a whole community up in up in there, okay? Just to bring that out there. So he's not he's not like big ups to all the people who helps Keith. I mean, they're all you have a community. Oh yeah, yeah. There's a lot of, there's a lot of people who, um, you know, I I uh, who have been huge supporters. Not all. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in all sorts of ways, from emotional support to, um, you know. Um, to financial support, right? To yeah. um, networking support, to a m- amazing friendship support, where it's like, "Yo, are you okay, homie? Like, are yeah. you good?" Right? Yeah. Um, so, but there's a lot of nasty and ugly out there too, and people respond to that just as much. You know, I was talking to my sister today. I was like, "Listen, like, yeah, there's going to be some nasty out there, but and then this is my own personal philosophy." If someone's like not nice to you, not 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 great to you, well then take that as a blessing because there are mm-hmm. six billion people on this planet and you can't love every single one of them. 
Mm, and yeah. not, not every one of them can love you. So take it as an invitation to move on to the next person who you can give love to or mm, you can receive yeah. love from, right? Mm. So um, that's, that's so important because, yeah, there is shame. People will shame you. People will shame you for working that job. Yeah. You know? yeah. Um, and you just have to say, listen, <laughs> next there's no love here. <laughs> yeah. Focus no, on it's, it's true. It's true. It's He's true. at 11, 11, 11. That's true. But I well, like how you said earlier, too, that you said mastery of yourself. And I just didn't want to, I know we're approaching the end of the podcast, but I didn't want to just fly by that um, because I think that our art, is so closely related to our heart and mm -hmm. and who we are and how we identify and what we want to give to the world and there has to be that consistent dedication to oneself to growing mm -hmm. um and me and tish we talk about that all the time like we made this pact i don't know how many years ago it was but we said that we didn't like what we were seeing in the industry and we said we want to be the types of individuals, not just artists, but the types of people where we have a well-rounded life, physically, emotionally, mm -hmm. spiritually, yeah. mentally. We wanted, we didn't want to just do everything in the sake of our art and not have work-life balance and love and, and, and a, a family that has actually been nurtured. And so we realized quickly that if we wanted to do that, that we probably were going to have to do things a little bit differently in what made sense for us individually. And so I love that you said that mastery of oneself, because there has to be that dedication to mm -hmm. growing as a person. And then it will naturally pour over into anything that you do, mm -hmm. not just your art. So I love that you said that. Yeah, 100 percent. I mean, I think I think that's that's so important as human beings, as artists, as as people who, you know, the environmental elements take a take a toll on us, you know. Yeah. No matter what lifestyle, no matter where you live, in history, <laughs> like yeah. you have to, you know, you have to take charge and take control of yourself, and learn how to and learn what you're about. Yes. That's well, I wanted to ask you too. What's next for you, Keith? Um, where what can where can people find you? I know that you can find uh, by whatever means necessary on ethics. Um, what, what's next for you out here in these streets? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, well, there's a few things cooking. Um, the one I'm able to talk about is, um, there is a, um, I'm working, I'm in the co-production partnership with ITVS. Uh, we're making a film, um, about, uh, parole. And so, mm. um, taking a deep dive into that subject matter. And I think it's going to be really eye-opening for a lot of people, um, because it's not something we normally talk about or know about so um but you know you can keep an eye on me uh for some of the other stuff that's cooking um <laughs> instagram uh and twitter it's just my name keith mccorder um yes and you can find my company decoder media on instagram and twitter facebook linkedin so all those yay and watch by whatever means necessary, everybody, if you haven't watched it, I'm telling you, it is 
I know people don't say the bomb anymore, whatever lit. I'll say that it's lit. Yeah, what, what do they say? <laughs> well, my brother told me, it was like, he's eight years younger than me. And I, I said something the other day and he was like, no, people don't say that. I was like, oh. <laughs> I'm getting into the auntie category, I guess. Yeah. Like, yeah. Especially yeah. with 30s, like, you know, you're like aunties. I'm like, oh, okay. So yeah, I, have totally in the auntie category. I don't care. I'll say that it's lit. It's it's lit. And we definitely <laughs> want to support you any way we can. Um, Keith, I just want to say before we end that um, literally continue to keep doing what you're doing. You literally are shining a light in this world with what you're doing. And it's not just entertainment for entertainment's sake. It's very informative, the work that you're doing, and it's definitely needed. So we're here to support you in any way, by any means necessary. We're now a friend to the <laughs> A friend to the <laughs> Well, thank you. Thank you. Um, and, you know, hopefully um, we'll have more to talk about and more, more, more good news to share um, in the coming months, years. So Absolutely. thank you for having me. Yeah. Oh, what were you saying? I was just saying, thank you for having me. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. So I was going to say, I want to make sure for our listeners that I um, spell your full name on Instagram. It's K-E-I-T-H-M-C-Q-U-I-R-T-E-R. So for our listeners out there, follow him, stalk him like we do, be invested in success, watch his movies, okay? Because we know if you're listening to us, you're definitely a cinephile, so... Yeah. Um, yeah. Live out there. Okay. And and typically, Bestie, you asked one additional question. But I feel like Keith already answered that. No, I know. <laughs> he already, like, he was like, boom, boom, bam, like, bullet point. He choose for yourself, grow. So, I mean, I don't really feel like he answered that. This, this interview was the embodiment of that question. <laughs> okay, so then never mind then. Never mind. You don't get to you so don't get that. Key, the question basically is how do you stay motivated and continue to stay consistent and persistent in following your dreams? But I feel like you answered that. If you feel like you did it, you could answer it. <laughs> eat your greens, eat your greens, drink your water. <laughs> <laughs> Make a bed, you know. That is that what it is. <laughs> we're, gonna, we're gonna just leave it at that, people. <laughs> Eat your greens. Mm, yeah. Wait, in capsule or powdered form? <laughs> Uh, who is wait wait you, you eat powdered who, greens? You, yes, your greens. Uh, let me tell you, you guys, you could take a green capsule that has like alfalfa sprouts, kale, like it's all in a capsule. I'm trying to tell what you. What are y'all doing over there in the Bay? I don't, uh-uh. Is that a Bay? Uh, New York. I'm saying in New York. Uh, 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 and this is the help. You can take your greens. We, and we, we, we pick greens. We put it in a pot. We boil it. We, you know, no, like. what about the powder that people put in their shakes? Oh, no. It's like a whole, it's a movement. You have I'm to. I'm a fish like, there. I know about the powder. Oh, that must be a Bay movement. I'm just going to. No, leave it's not. <laughs> when you went up to the mountain. Didn't they have that, like the powder that they put in the smoothies and the thing? No, don't you're, you're, thinking, you're thinking about spirulina, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me just say, ain't gonna help you. You gotta eat the greens, right? I you know. Eat the greens. Don't that foolishness. You guys, <laughs> you can go to any health food store, even Whole Foods. I'm trying to tell you, and and I'm gonna Instagram this to you after this, and it's like. <laughs> 
green something and you look in the back and it's like kale extract. Maybe it's not the real kale. But it's like, and you put the powder in your shakes. Guys, this is a real thing. Mm. I know. Please eat your real vegetables. With that saying, guys, <laughs> thank, you guys. thank you guys every Thursday. We know you're here for us. We want to thank you out there. Uh, Spotify, you still hold it down for us. Numbers always looking for, boop, boop for Spotify out there. And guys, every single every single week, 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, 5 p.m. 5 p.m. West Coast Time, 7 p.m. Central. 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 I didn't forget about you this time. Mm-hmm. Didn't forget about you. No hate in the Central. I just was in Mississippi. That's another story. But anyways. <laughs> 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 we will stay on Keith for a second after um, we wrap. Right. <laughs> Thank you guys. We love. We'll see you next Thursday. Bye. <laughs>